Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. In the podcast this week, I'm speaking to author Tom Watson. Tom is a graduate of the UEA Creative Writing Course, where he won the Curtis Brown Prize. Metronome, his debut novel, was published on the 31st of March. It is an utterly compelling read, examining what happens to human relationships and love when put under extreme pressure. The book is highly anticipated, with pre-publication acclaim coming from authors such as Naomi Ishiguro and Elizabeth McNeil. Tom, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for having me on. No problem. It's lovely to have you on. So as I do with all my guests, I'd like to start off by going back to your childhood. You grew up in London with your mum and your two older brothers. What was life like for you? I mean, growing up with two older brothers is it's quite fun in some respects. We had, I think, a fair amount of horseplay was involved. I think um, <laughs> that was the sort of situation. But there's only sort of two years between each of us. So we're all roughly the same sort of age. So it was a really, really fun time. They looked out for me a little bit. I probably wound them up a little bit. <laughs> but there was a lot of like bike rides, trips to the library, hanging out with friends, that sort of stuff. Rollerblading? There, there might have been a little bit of rollerblading, yeah. There was there was definitely a phase when um, I had those kind of like round 90s sunglasses, shiny pair of rollerblades and, and very grazed knees. Yeah. <laughs> Strong. But you're not doing that these days, you know? No, no, I've given, my rollerblading days are thankfully behind me. I think. <laughs> you mentioned going to the library. So were you a big reader as a kid? Yeah, I mean, like growing up, I think everything gets lost a little bit, but books were always there. So all the bookcases around my mum's house, you know, they had stacked with you know, Roald Dahl and Wind in the Willows, Dick King Smith and all that kind of stuff. And that must have featured a lot. But the sort of things that I really remember are... I remember my mum reading to me a lot. So it would have been those sort of Sunday afternoon, there would be a lot of tie-ins with stuff on the TV and my mum would read that sort of stuff to me as well. So I remember things like My Family and Other Animals by Gerald Mm Thorrell. And I remember she read that to me and that was around that kind of age where I started to be able to follow the words and she definitely skipped out some of the swear words and I think I called her up on that. What did she say when you called her out for that? I think she said, you're too young for that, and just kind of ploughed on through. (laughs) End of discussion. End of, yeah, end of discussion. And what was the first book you actually remember reading yourself? So I remember reading an awful lot of, like, Roald Dahl. So there was, like, The Giraffe, The Pelly and Me, The Enormous Crocodile, things like that. I remember The Twits and, and Matilda. Those things really stand out for me in terms of, been the first actual books so I can I've still got the the battered copies around somewhere I should probably should probably get some new ones in but those stories held my attention for a good number of hours read and reread excellent and tell me about dressing up as one of the hardy boys when you were at school so that that was my next phase it was a little bit maybe a year or two before the rollerblading really took off 
So I, we used to get a lot of books from the library. So they would sell their books off at certain points. So my mum would just go and just like come back with all these books. And I think that's how we ended up with so many kids' books in the house. And so they seem to have just this amazing array of, of Hardy Boys books. And I was astounded because at that point, I thought like Franklin W. Dixon, I think it is. I thought that they were just a real person. And then they had churned out like 150 of these very, very similar plotted books. You know, they were a bit of their time, I suppose. But I remember reading those as a kid, kind of getting them off my brothers and my primary school teacher at the time. We used to have to fill in like a reading diary, um, what you've read each week. So I was probably about sort of nine or 10, perhaps. And um, she flicked through this one day and she was like, you really need to diversify your reading, Tom. <laughs> so I got told off for this. And um, it was around that time when they introduced this sort of come to school dressed as your favorite character, which was so much fun. We all, like, all the kids loved it because it's basically an excuse not to wear a school uniform. Mm-hmm. And there was no doubt in my mind as to who I was going to go as. I mean, it was it was the Hardy Boys or Bust. So the, the only question was, you know, is it going to be Frank or is it going to be Joe? And I think Joe's a couple of years younger, so I maybe identified with him a little bit more. So I did, you know, jeans, T-shirt and trainers. Um, and it probably was the least imaginative of all the kids who turned up for school that day in terms of their their costumes. And I remember sort of seeing my teacher at the front gate and she just she just sort of like rolled her eyes. And I think she thought that I was um, I was pulling a fast one and I just had put zero effort in. But, you know, I was Joe Hardy for that day. <laughs> Brilliant. I, I bet your mum was quite pleased about it as well, because I, I hear this time and time again from parents, especially in the run up to World Book Day. You know, the uh, the World Book Day, they love for the books, but also just the, the stress of finding an, an outfit for children <laughs> seems yes. to get more and more every year. Yeah, I think yeah, she was pretty happy with that one. Good choice. I'm really interested to know if there's a particular book that kind of really sticks out in your mind where you read something maybe somewhere a bit different from home or, you know, that really impacted you. Do you have a book like that? I mean, in terms of like growing up, there was definitely, um, you know, my mum used to take us on these holidays in the summer, like a week or two, and we'd drive down to France and go camping. And it was always, I'm sure for her, it was probably the least relaxing week or two of her year. She would like pack everything up into the car, three boys for you know a good sort of 12 hour car ride. A couple of times we went and we had like two day journeys. Oh and on one of these, one of these times we went down to the Alps and like, I'd never seen these kind of mountains before. So I was like, I was astounded at these mountains. But during this car ride, I remember sort of, I probably read my Royal Dolls or my Hardy Boys. I'd probably read them cover to cover a couple of times. So I was reaching around in like the, the back seat for whatever else there was and my brothers had bought their books as well and i came across a copy of the secret diary of adrian mole and i i mean i opened it and i i had no idea what it was i was just like it seemed really big and really weighty to me at that point and i don't think i'd ever read like a book which was a diary before so that kind of threw me from the start i was just like i just opened it in the middle and started reading and i i remember very clearly sort of just thinking what is going on with this kid what is he about and one passage in particular sort of has stuck in my mind and there's a very short passage where he sat around the table having breakfast and it's about his dad and the passage is something along the lines of um dad announced that he was going to be getting a vasectomy and i pushed my sausages away untouched (laughs) and i read this and i asked my mum and i asked my brothers as we're driving along down to our final destination i was like what's a vasectomy and my brother's (laughs) 
my brothers by that point they knew what was they knew what a vasectomy was so they're laughing away and my mum is trying for the life of her to remain focused on like these hairpins and um i think was probably stunned into silence um <laughs> it took me a couple of years but i i think i came back around at a later point and reread um and reread adrian mole and by that point it all sort of it all made sense a little bit more <laughs> and the stunned silence also made sense God, those, yeah, those exactly. standard um sound, sound like they're absolutely lovely like you say for you not necessarily for your mum looking yeah. at her so after school, you went on to study economics at Manchester University, which did, yeah. incidentally is the best university in the world because I also studied at Manchester well, University. Yeah. And after graduating, you moved to Japan to teach. Yes. Um, which just sounds like what a brilliant thing to do. Like, How did that happen? Tell me what it was like. So I'd done my three years undergrad economics, as you mentioned, and I was a little bit hesitant about getting into finance or getting into that kind of world. And I knew about teaching abroad and stuff like that. And it was just something that really, really appealed. So I applied and I got a place to go and teach in Japan. And it was a really sort of amazing setup. So you had a lot of support from the sort of the board of education. And I ended up in the northern island of Hokkaido. Japan has 47 prefectures and it is the biggest prefecture by size but it's got the sparsest population. So it's it's as far away from sort of Tokyo as you could imagine. It's a lot of rural communities. Where I was on the eastern side of the island, I was covering seven high schools and a lot of these would be sort of like half day's bus journey away and stuff like that. So there's a lot of journeys along forested peninsulas to, to little sort of local high schools. And um, wow. I mean, it, that was, it was just an incredible couple of years. It was incredibly fun. Yeah. So would you literally go to on a half day trip just to teach for a couple of hours and then come back? Or would you go for a period of time? How would that so work? So I'd, I'd go, I had this like at the beginning of each term, they would give me a schedule and it'd be like, this day you're going to be in this town, this day you're going to be in that town. And I'd have to do overnight stays. So to begin with, I would stay at like small little inns and stuff like that. But as I got to know people, I'd, I ended up staying with other teachers at the school. They would like put me up. So it was a really nice way to kind of get to know people and, and, and get to know the towns themselves a little bit better than just sort of being a traveller, staying in a hotel or something and yeah, just passing through. And I understand that during that time, because you kind of got back into reading again, because at some point it had fallen off your radar. Yeah, I, I tailed off a, a little bit at university. I think partly the subject matter that I was, uh, you know, economics was was my focus then. And yeah, I, it just happened. It wasn't, it was only now really that looking back, I was, I was like, what, I, what exactly did I read for pleasure at uni? And I don't think there was an awful lot, you know, have, a, have, have the books going on in the summer holidays, but definitely not the way that I was reading. And when I got to Japan, that was the sort of time when, as I say, I had these bus journeys and things like that. I was living alone where I'd been living with housemates and things like that. So you immediately, I just had a lot more free time. And it was quite difficult to come across like English books where we were. There weren't a lot of big cities near me to begin with. The, the nearest big city was a couple of hours drive away. So getting your hands on like English books was was difficult, but it meant that a very like a community kind of of exchange grew up among fellow English teachers where you'd have books which would get passed around and we'd all we'd all sort of vie to get the ones we wanted to get our hands on. But a lot of the reading that I got into then was around things that I'd missed out growing up. So a lot of things like Moby Dick and and East of Eden. I remember like particularly East of Eden really um was just this incredible read. I loved it. And then there were things as well, which I'd never known before, like Annie Prue was one, and then Virginia Woolf as well. That's kind of 
it definitely definitely kind of opened up a lot more doors I think in terms of what the variety of reading I think my primary school teacher was would finally be happy with me (laughs) yeah no more Tom Hardy it's interesting because you really went down the classics route didn't you at that point so I mean that must just have been like you say just to do with the availability of books that are there but it's fantastic you had that yeah and so I have this theory that everybody that reads has got a book or some books that have had a major impact on them on that could be professionally it could be personally so do you have a book like that a book that kind of changed your life and if so what book is that yeah so I mean it's really really difficult for me to think of a fiction book which has had the same kind of impact as it's it's a non-fiction book so it's on writing by Stephen King and I I read it shortly after I got back from Japan and I'd sort of started writing short stories and, and writing first drafts of novels. And I wasn't I wasn't successful and I didn't really know how to go about it. And I came across on writing in just local bookshop in Clapham and I opened it up, read a couple of pages, and immediately just was like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna get this. And, and I went home and I read it. And basically what he, what he does is he talks a little bit about it's partly autobiographical and it deals a little bit with his marriage and his his early kind of publications, Carrie and I think all the way through to like the shining and the stand and everything. And it deals with his addiction at the same time and it deals with the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts of of writing and, and an element of publishing as well. I think there's a lot of those kind of books around now. But for me at the time, I just didn't know they existed and I I didn't know where to begin. And one of the things that I took away from from that book was just how simple it can be. Like if you want to write, you don't need anything, pen and paper or or laptop if you've got your hands on it, but you you just do it. And the real key thing was don't be disheartened by the state of your first draft. And that was like, Getting to grips with that as a as a sort of a lesson was really instrumental. And I think I took that to heart a little bit and I came away from reading that book feeling really sort of motivated and really emboldened. I was like, okay, I had a plan to sort of write a short story a month. And wow. I did that for a sort of nine or 10 months. And it was a process of just like, just finish something, just do a first draft and then make sure you have enough time to do the edit. So I would spend one week doing a first draft of a story and then three weeks on the edit and then just trying to work out what works within the story, identify those elements and kind of elevate them and then strip out all the rest, which is just getting in the way. So it, was a, it, it really helped me in that regard to kind of give a path as to, as to how to approach it because up until then it had been quite an unknown. Mm. to have a book like that with such a esteemed writer and it's it, I know exactly the book you mean it's a fantastic book and it's what I like about it is he writes well he just writes so well doesn't he and he writes in a way that it's not like a dull textbook it's not here are the bullet points what you need to do it just kind of feeds that message through so when did you decide to go on your creative writing course because you work full-time and you know when you came back from Japan we'll come back onto what you're doing now in a bit but you you know you weren't focusing on your writing completely so how, how did that come about yeah so I'd been back in the UK for for like a number of years and I was writing in the mornings I was getting up and doing that that really sort of horrendous 4am start and that, I think you can only do that for so long yeah um before you know you have to make concessions or something something gets in the way but it was around 2016 I started the creative writing course at UEA and that was um it was a big decision because my wife and I were, I had kind of approached it and I was, I'd applied and she knew I was applying, 
I didn't really think that I was going to get on. So it was kind of like one of those, it felt like a bit of a Hail Mary, really, you know, like, let's see what happens here. And then, of course, you know, I found out that I got on, I got called for an interview, that went well. And then you get the acceptance. And around the same time, my wife had just like started a, a new job. But I kind of had it in my mind that maybe we would, I was done with London a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'd been there, I'd grown up around here, come back from Japan, had about sort of five or six years and was a bit tired of the daily grind. So I was contemplating a little bit the thought of maybe just you know getting out of London for a year and going to Norwich. So this was roughly the plan. And then my wife began a new job in London where she was like, hang on a minute. <laughs> I, I actually want to stay in London. And, and it, it was like a really sort of... Um, a moment where how do you make this decision how do you get to a kind of a consensus together within a relationship you know we had some we had some good chats and of course like we she's been incredibly supportive of me and I've, I've tried to repay that so she stayed in London and I had a couple of days in Norwich during the week and stuff like that and um, I mean it was further complicated by the fact that we uh, we got pregnant or she got pregnant at around the same time that I started on the course so yes, she did <laughs> I mean like you know Trouble doesn't come in ones and twos. So, you know, it was a battalion. A memorable time. A memorable yes. time. Yeah. So fast forward today, you're now living back in London. Yes. With your wife, Jen, and you've got two young daughters. And in addition to being a published author, as I mentioned earlier, you, you're working. So you work in financial regulations. How do you juggle the two worlds? Because that's two quite different worlds, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it actually, they balance out quite well because they leave parts they are very different parts of the brain um in in many respects you know financial regulation is looking a lot of financial crime trying to protect the markets against you know instances of market abuse and stuff like that there's a lot of policy work involved and things you know there's a lot of technical reading and technical writing but it doesn't necessarily get in the way it's just a matter of just making sure that i have a couple of, if i can square away a couple of hours per day to write i find it you know they they complement each other in quite nice ways so so mm-hmm. it is it is sometimes a, a juggling act especially with the two girls as you mentioned but, uh, yeah I bet I think also the fact that like you say you're in a much more kind of technical role probably helps because I imagine if it was something a little bit more creative having that kind of classroom environments might be a bit more difficult but um we've kind of obviously had a bit of a funny funny strange couple of years now haven't we I mean what's really interesting is we started to do this podcast in September 2020 and we did it in response to coronavirus and whilst we were doing it um, obviously all the questions were we're in the middle of a pandemic and actually as we're recording this there seems to be a slight touch word glimmer of hope and things are vaguely starting to return back to normal for us I mean so it's been two years basically how have the last two years been for you and your family it's been a very very odd time like I mean I I think for everybody you know like everyone's had very sort of different experiences of the pandemic our second daughter it's actually her birthday today um she's just she's just turned two so she was born right before the pandemic like a month before we went into that first lockdown so in a sense to begin with it was actually really um I would never have got to spend as much time with her mm-hmm. growing up in those early months as I did. So there was an element of kind of bind together as a family and, and have those hours. There was probably too many games of Scrabble and things like that. I think we, my wife and I drove each other to probably a little bit bonkers in that regard. But, <laughs> but the last couple of years, in terms of the downside, it's just been it's just been really, really quite tricky to deal with, you know, like not being able to see people and not being able to see um, like my grandma and things like that has been really difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's just hope that the, the glimmer of hope keeps growing. 
just going back to books again, when I've been speaking to people over the course of the last couple of years, I found people have fallen into one or two camps largely. So some people have found that the extra time at home has meant they've read quite a lot and they've been able to kind of do things they wouldn't necessarily have done um, had they been at work as normal. Whereas others have gone, do you know what? There was something about it that just shut my brain down and I couldn't read. Where were you in that as a reader? I think at different points, I probably occupied both ends of that. Um, so there was definitely times where, you know, a couple of weeks went by and I just had no interest in like picking up a book. But then for whatever reason, you know, you, you either just come through it or something changes a little bit or the right book lands in your hands at the right time and, and that sort of sense. And so actually the last six weeks, I feel like I'm on a real tear. I've, I've been through some really amazing books. So I'm, I'm quite keen to keep that going. So, What was the last book you read? The last one was Department of Speculation by Jenny Offal, which, if you haven't read it, is absolutely blistering. It's incredible. I loved it. I would wholly recommend it. What's so good about it? Tell me about it. It is a very slim novel. It's only a couple of hundred pages. But what I thought was phenomenal is the way that this narrative is built out of these fragments. Um, so it's it's a little bit of it's slightly anecdotal in certain respects, and it's slightly sort of it feels a little bit like you're reading almost like diary entries, but it's all a little bit spaced out and it builds in these layers to give this kind of this picture of a marriage. And it's basically at the heart of it is the story of, of this marriage told through these kind of like broken fragments. And there's a point for me around halfway through this book, which there was a chapter which I had to reread like three times. And I felt like it was probably like very clearly signposted as to what is going on here. And this chapter just completely blew me away. I'd kind of been skating along on this narrative, like just enjoying this kind of freewheeling fragments. And then suddenly it all just kind of like came together and um, I was like blown away by it. Oh my God, I've not read it. And I, I, from what you said, it sounds like it's something I would really like. I love stuff like that that just kind of hits you like a bus, you know? Yeah, I haven't stopped talking about it. I will read it after a further recommendation. Do you always have one book on the go or are you someone that can read multiple things at once? It varies. Um, most of the time there's more than one on. Yeah, mm. e- either a, you know, a book for the commute, a book for nighttime and then something for the weekend, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But I think three is probably like my maximum. If it's more than that, then I'm, I'm not actually, I'm going to have to go back to the start of one of them and go fresh. But yeah, roughly. Like, pretty good. Yeah. most people struggle with more than one anyway let's get on to the book the reason why we're here chatting today because the fourth and last book i want to talk to you about is the book that you've written so metronome is due out uh, on the 31st of march um so let's just go first of all for your elevator pitch tell us about the book okay so metronome is about a couple called Ina and whitney who have they've been imprisoned on a remote island and they've been there for 12 years and they begin to suspect that they've been abandoned by their warden so shipwrecks have started washing up, they're running low on supplies, and then you know, a sheep appears one day, and the arrival of this sheep kind of puts doubt into Ina's mind about the nature of the island that they're on. They've been there 12 years, they've never once seen a sheep. So at this point, their love and their loyalty between these two characters starts to get a little bit tested. They have very different readings of the situation. And as this kind of distrust between them grows a little bit, Ina starts looking if there's a way that she might escape and uh, she starts keeping secrets of her own. I love that. Dot, dot, dot. It's a fantastic book. I was saying to you just before we started reading, I've just read it while I was on holiday and I really couldn't put it down. The thing that 
also is worth mentioning because I love a dual time frame. It's the fact that you have the dual time frame element yeah. as well. So obviously you've got what's going on in the island, but then also you have these flashbacks to what life was like before and why they ended up there, which um, I really love that kind of dynamic between the two elements of the book. Just it sounds like a silly question because obviously you want everyone to read it, but why should everyone read it from your standpoint? I really hope that readers are going to be able to you know, find in Ina a character where there's someone to root for. I think it's a book about choice, and you mentioned, yeah, you know, I think in any relationship, whether that's the sort of relationship between Ina and Whitney, but you also have this relationship between the individuals and their government. The reason why they're there, they've committed a crime, and this government is there. They've basically extended control over a multitude of basic human choices. And that brings them, that's the reason why they've been imprisoned. So you've got, I think Ina becomes this kind of very resilient character, but the two of them on this island for 12 years have grown quite sort of like accustomed to each other. And they've got the, Ina and Whitney have this kind of way of living together where they kind of move around each other without really challenging each other in a way. But when this sheep arrive, that's when things kind of start to move in a slightly different direction. So as I was kind of coming up with this idea about the book, I knew it was going to be at the heart of it. It was going to be the story of the relationship between the two of them. And I wanted to explore this sort of idea about what it would be like to be trapped in this awful kind of present. Mm -hmm. So I think if you're doing any kind of task or if you know you're going through something, but there's an end point, you can kind of work towards that. But this idea that it might actually be open-ended and they might be there for, you know, for good. They, I should say that they're, they're stuck on this island. They're tethered to this croft by, um, they have to take these pills from a pill clock. So they can only, they have to take them three times a day. So they can only travel so far before they have to come back. So Ina ends up, you know, she is haunted by the choices that she made in the past. She's also faced with these diminishing possibilities for the future. And the person that she's there with has an absolutely completely different reading of the situation that she has, and they are mutually exclusive. They cannot coexist these truths as they would see it. So I really, you know, I really want readers to be able to sort of feel the mud between her toes to understand like the logic of her decision making, the choices that she faces. And when the wind isn't blowing a gale, there's a few moments where I think, you know, readers are going to be able to hear a pin drop. Mm, Absolutely. I, I think, I think the story is so clever. And I think all the different kind of parts coming together is is excellent but what I'm really fascinated by because it's such an unusual story like the ideas are all really quite original so where did the idea come from how did you come up with that it wasn't just one thing as, as I think a lot of these cases are is you know I started with what with one idea which was I just wanted to write a very sort of minimalist story about a couple in conflict and this element of time as well where time becomes difficult to measure But in that sense, the idea of this relationship, whilst I was at UEA, there was um, Anthony Gormley installed a couple of his Another Place sculptures. And these are like the life-size casts of his body where he he positions them around the UK. So there were three of them on the campus at the time. And I I only remember actually ever seeing two of them, but apparently there there was a third one, but I can't remember where it was. But one of them was on top of the English building. Another was sort of half hidden on this walkway by the library. And I just remember like they had such different personalities. They're obviously, they're both, they're exactly the same. They're replicas of Gormley's body. One of them is like looking at the horizon and the other one is almost sort of like, 
hidden and looking inward. And I began to wonder about, you know, how these two personalities would interact and, you know, what they would think of each other. And that gave me a kickstart to sort of start thinking about this idea of the, of the relationship. There was one other element, and that was around um, putting them in a very confined space. Well, not, not a confined space sort of in, in terms of how big it might be, but they are stuck there with each other. And I mean, there's a sense, I think, in in terms of looking at various sort of prisons and, and elements of incarceration. And I think one thing that came to mind around that was sort of, this is a prison that has been purposefully designed to test their relationship. So that was definitely in the forefront of my mind and, and how to kind of construct that. So I was thinking a little bit about like room 101 and what room 101 might look like if it was for a couple as opposed to just an individual. So that was part of the trigger as well. Cool. Lots of different inspiration. I love the fact that you can pinpoint it, those statues as well. That's really cool. So if you, if you ever see those again, you'll be like, oh, it's the beginning of my yeah. story. Um, <laughs> And how was the actual process for you? Because obviously you were studying your MA, you're working now, your book's been published. So how did it all kind of come together? So yeah, the book began whilst I was on the MA. So that was 2017. And it was quite nice. So obviously around sort of March, April time, I had about six months where I knew I had a bit of time before I was going to go back to work. I didn't have a job lined up. So there was a sort of hairy element to it where I was like, okay, I've got to get on and I've got to write this dissertation for the MA. And that's ultimately where the book grew out of that. But as we sort of mentioned, we, we just had a baby around that time as well. And I think that did something to my brain in, in a sense as, as probably not uncommon, but you start sort of walking down a road and making like risk assessments of, of absolutely everything. And I remember walking down a hill pushing our um, Margaret in a buggy and just sort of looking at the traffic hurtling past, which is you know, a couple of meters away and just being sort of just thinking, you know, what would you do if that car coming up the hill mounts the pavement or something like that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, being in that kind of frame of mind is it's exhausting, but it's also, it's quite fertile, I think, for for trying to write a book because it gets your, um, it gets your imagination working. So the book itself, it took about three years until I was happy with it, really. But a bit through it, the dissertation won a prize at UEA, so I got to meet Carolina Sutton through that, and so I got yeah, that was my introduction to to Curtis Brown, and from there, yeah, we took it out about almost two years ago, maybe maybe eighteen months, I can't remember. So it's been a long time building, but it's um it's been an extremely you know enjoyable process all the way through writing. And to this point, all the various edits as well. Yeah, because we're recording this before the publication date. So we're kind of in it the is, calm yeah. before the storm at the moment. How are you feeling about the build-up? I, well, I mean, I'm incredibly excited. It's an absolute whirlwind, you know. It's so exciting. I'm so excited to be able to go, to be able to get in and around like all the various bookshops, pop in, meet people who have read the book, you know, talk to people like yourselves. And yeah, it's just so exciting. I just can't believe it. It feels like it's been incubating in my head. And especially during the last couple of years, there's still a sense of is this actually real is it yes is this going to happen it must be very strange and the thought of it actually being physically on the shelf I mean like I said it's a great book and I also think for any bookshops it'll be great but I think it's going to be really popular within the independent bookshops because I just think it's got so many different nuances to it and that's what makes a really good hand sell for for people like myself and my colleagues so it will definitely be in plenty of indies I imagine absolutely This is probably a bit premature, given that your current book hasn't actually been published yet. (laughs) But what what are you working on now? I mean, you're not just twiddling your thumbs. Are you you just relishing in the joys of of Metro and the build-up to it, or have you got anything else on on the go? No, so there is... I'm not getting up at 4am anymore. I can't manage that. But there is, yeah, I'm, I'm making the time. I get the time to write, which is... 
I'm pretty lucky to have that. But there is a book. It's early days, though. So it's still first draft. So there's, I'm not yet at that point where I think I even know how to categorize it. And so I'm afraid I'm going to have to keep that under wraps. Absolutely. I totally understand. I totally understand. I think at the moment, you just need to, like I say, relish the joys of metronome and, and just enjoy the ride because I do think it's going to do incredibly, incredibly well. Tom, it's been so brilliant chatting Tuesday. Thank you so much. Your journey is really interesting and I think your book is fabulous. So um, best of luck with the publication and thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.